and welcome to Masala History Podcast. My name is Deepthi and in this episode, I will be talking about one of the most intriguing figures that I have come across in South Asian history, a woman who was a courtesan, a concubine, uh, a wife, a warrior, a leader, a lover, a Mughal noble, prisoner, British ally and sometimes foe, a queen, a Muslim, a Christian and perhaps a cross-dresser. A woman of many names, she was most commonly referred to as Begum Samru and she is going to be the subject of this episode. But before we begin, I will I wanted to say that I will be talking about some paintings and other visual material in this episode and all these materials as well as show notes, references and further readings that you might want to look at as you're listening to the podcast or later after you finish is available on our website. So please go check it out at www.masalahistory.com. And while you're there on our website, do leave us a productive comment or let us know if you would like us to explore a particular topic on South Asian history or culture on this podcast at uh, a later date, maybe in June or July, because we're still lining up episodes for those two months. So without further ado, I'd like to get back into the life of this very, very colorful person um, and explore what it it was to be a leader in 19th century Mughal slash British world and not just any leader but a woman leader at this at the, in this period in the 19th century. The ill-fated Mughal emperor Shah Alam II uh, who ruled from 1759 to 1806 mostly name only like his immediate predecessors and successors knew nothing of the glory of Mughal empire of the earlier centuries. Suffering from attacks from the Afghans, Marathas, the British and others, Shah Alam II had to acknowledge Begum Samru um, as, quote, his esteemed protector. For her many services rendered over the course of many, many years, the emperor had given her land in Delhi to build a haveli, a, a grand palace. Today, her palace in Old Delhi, once a space of bustling political activity and entertainment in the form of notches and diplomacy, uh, is known as Bhagirath Place, a building quite uh, worn down, uh, which is the house of many film distribution companies um, in, in, in what was earlier known as the Shah Jahanabad. When ambitious or progressive historians write about 19th century Delhi and the many colorful colonial historical figures that populated what was once the Mughals' undisputed domain, they use words like transgressive, cross-cultural and international. They point to British men like Colonel James Skinner, William Fraser, and David Octoloni, or shall I say Sir David Octoloni, as those that lived in ways that defied the social norms either of the West or the East or both. Amongst these names, there is one of a woman that stands apart, and this would be that of Begum Samru of Sardana, a small principality outside Delhi, presently in the Meerut district of UP, Uttar Pradesh. The first book-length study of Begum Samru, or 
rather I should say, on Begum Samruh, was published in 1925 by Brajendra Nath Banerjee, titled Begum Samruh. And it remains the only original book-length project on this historical figure um, up until very recent times. There have been a few others over the years. Some of the heavily romanticized uh, stories of Begum Samru have originated through these uh, derivative uh, works. But more recently, um, instead of concentrating heavily on her many perpetrated love affairs, some of them confirmed, but others uh, uh, probably fictionalized, uh, we have new scholars looking at Begum Samru, even if it's not in a book-length study format. Um, in particular, I've liked the work of Darbar Ghosh, uh, who's worked um, on studying women in colonial India, and I will be linking to her book um, in our show notes um, on our website www.masalahistory.com um, as well as a few other works that I have found interesting to read uh, to understand this character, this, this historical figure uh, better. The writer Bridgeraj Singh um, expresses no surprise in the romanticization of the Begum. Indeed, after reading about her, I'm astonished that Bollywood has not yet made a film on her life. She is far more exciting than the fictionalized princesses of Jodha Bhai, um, of Jodha Akbar, and certainly almost as powerful, if not more powerful, than any of the quasi-historical characters played more recently by Deepika Padukone. Oh, on a side note, we are talking about these characters in our uh, very exciting podcast episode that's coming up next month in May, um, which will be on historical women as they are depicted in Bollywood movies. So stay tuned for that one and make sure that you subscribe so that you get the announcement in your app or on your phone or on your laptop or anywhere you're getting this podcast. Okay. Begum Samru was born in 1757 or thereabouts. She died in 1836, so she lived a good long life. She was born to an Arab nobleman with no money and rather early death uh, written in his destiny. After his death, the Begum, only a child then, moved with her mother to Delhi to find refuge in a quota of a well-known Tawaif in Shah Jahanabad. In 1767, then known as Farzana, her given name, she became the Bibi, translated as concubine in English, of a German-Austrian mercenary named Walter Reinhardt. Reinhardt was a strong man with a small army of four battalions and about 2,000 soldiers, available for hire in the subcontinent for anyone who needed an extra hand at battles. He had, let's say, collaborated with the British, the French, the Jats, the Mughals, anybody who, who was willing to pay him. Reinhardt was one of the mercenaries who had fought on the side of the British in the decisive Battle of Palashi, better known as Plassey to the English-speaking world, in 1757. But by 1760, he was working with Mir Qasim of Bengal against the British, leading to the British declaring him as an enemy and his surrender becoming a precondition to any negotiation with, an, uh, with North Indian rulers around the Bengal presidency. He was a dangerous man. 
Reinhardt was, as far as the records can show us, also a man of seriousness, unsmiling and quite the opposite of what we would call a jocular personality. He garnered himself the sobriquet Le Sombre, the somber one. Indeed, it would be strange if the 19th century equivalent of a modern hired assassin of sorts was a jovial, lovable personality. Other scholars, however, have given a less colourful ex- explanation of Reinhardt uh, and his change of name, suggesting that he himself changed his last name to Somers or Summers, which was then Indianized to Samru by his followers. Begum Samru, then called just Farzana, appears to have been not as gloomy in her personality as Reinhardt was. For soon after she becomes a bibi within his harem, she is elevated from bibi to wife proper. Soon, she took on the title of Begum in, in Persian, essentially Mrs. or a title of respect for a married woman, and Reinhardt's adopted last name, Samru. There was born Begum Samru. And what a Begum she was. She accompanied Reinhardt to battle camps, helped with war strategy, and led men and fought battles herself. In 1778, about 11 years after she came to the harem of Mr. Lesombre, the man died and the Begum offered her husband's army and protection to the Mughal emperor, which is when Shah Alam II conferred upon her the principality um, of, of Sardana as Jagir that she can uh, use for herself uh, to derive revenue via taxation and etc. Begum Samru was a survivor. She continued to adapt to the new circumstances that she found herself in. Indeed, South Asia at the time was in a constant state of political flux and she, with her small but well-trained troops of infantry and cavalrymen, were at the centre of all the action. In John Lowell's book on Begum Samru, he clarifies through archival records from the period that the tale of Begum's ratification by Shah Alam II and the gift of territorial rights of Sardana to the Begum that I mentioned earlier was not as direct as many scholars have put it. The estate appears to have been gifted not to Begum Samru at first after Reinhardt's death, but to her stepson, Zafariyab Khan, um, one of Reinhardt's sons from another wife. When Zafriyab Khan died in 1801, the British, who were by then in political ascendance in the region, demanded annexation of these lands to which the Begum had approached Shalem's successors for authority over the principality. The British was not very thrilled with the Begum's moves, even then. But later she switched allegiance, also as a way of her own survival. After 1803, she signed a treaty with the British to come to their aid whenever required while she maintained possession of the Sardana, um, the principality, until her death. Darbha Ghosh, citing earlier scholars, suggests, however, that Reinhardt's rise to power and access to an estate as a gift from the Mughal emperor was really the work of Begum Samru. In fact, Ghosh remarks that the choice of Sardana as their estate or Jaidad was the Begum's idea as she was originally from this region. 
In any case, the couple, a German butcher's son and a courtesan's daughter, became landholders worth an income of 6 lakh rupees annually. While the British were quite enamoured with the entertainments and nash performances she threw at her Haveli, the mansion, mostly in Delhi, but sometimes also in Sardana, they continued to be at best ambivalent of her authority. In 1803, Governor-General Lord Wellesley had decided it was best to assimilate Sardana into the ever-expanding British India. Begum wrote to a fellow Natch lover and quintessential Nabob Sir David Octoloni in a letter uh, about this. Quote, At the period that the English gentlemen have acquired possession of Hindustan, I rejoice that from a consideration of the same race as theirs, I should be exalted in rank. End quote. This quote from Lal's book, repeated by Bridgerad Singh in his essay on uh, what is really a critical review of the book, Um, and about the Begum, is quite perplexing. Singh admonishes Lal for not considering the use of race as a commonality that the Begum drew with the British, arguing that Lal's explanation that the Begum meant to say religion, not race, is not factually supported. This is an interesting question in considering Begum Samru, who had in 1781, three years after Reinhardt's death, converted to Roman Catholicism and changed her name to Joanna and built the largest cathedral in India at the time. This cathedral, a structure that is as transgressive or cross-cultural as she was, can be still seen and visited in Sardana, which is a short drive north of Delhi. For pictures of the cathedral and her palace in Delhi, uh, please visit our website www.masalahistory.com. To go back to the issue of race that the Begum raised in her letter to David Octoloni, Singh, the author, has adamantly posited that the race consciousness of the British would have played into their friendship with the Begum, arguing that in no means would have the British seen the Begum as one of their own, even if she was remarkably said to have been quite European-looking. Her complexion was said to be that of an Italian woman and not quite Indian or Arabic-looking. Even though she had converted to Christianity, her modus operandi had not changed. From 1778 to 1788, the Begum and her troops were employed in protecting the Mughal emperor from the attacks of the Marathas, Rohiyas, Jats and Sikhs. For her protection, she was named, or for, for offering her protection, she was named by the Mughal emperor as Zebun Nisa in 1787 and given robes Killeth, as they are called, and through that ceremony she became a designated noble of the Mughal court. No small feat for a woman. Her Christianity or her conversion did not seem to stand in the way of her interest in protecting the Mughal throne, or it, and it was never a hindrance to her acceptance into late Mughal courtly world. We're not sure why she chose to convert to Catholicism, but it certainly came in handy when in 1790 she married her French lover, Le Vassou. I hope I said that name right. It might actually be Le Vassou. Not sure. If there are any French people listening or French speakers, please correct me and leave me a comment. 
The relationship was ill-fated. The union resulted in his death from an unfortunate star-crossed lover's fate type of misunderstanding and the Begum's brief imprisonment at the hands of her own troops. Levasu apparently did not have the support of the troops and as her husband, who was much undesired by the troops, both of them were forced to flee Sardana for Patna. In this process, they were separated, and in the events that followed the separation, Levasu killed himself, thinking that the Begum had taken her own life. This relationship greatly weakened Begum Samru politically, as she had to, in 1795, ask protection from the English government, government from her own troops. The Begum continued to patronize Catholic Christianity as well as Islamic dargahs and clergy throughout her life, leaving her religion an ambiguous part of an already complex persona. Her patronage also extended to painters, poets, and for architectural structures, and so one could see this as her exerting the right of a legitimate ruler over her jaidad, her estate. So too were her parties not merely an entertainment venue that she was herself a part of in her younger years, but the, the notches were definitely a sexualized spectacle, especially for the British. But Begum Samru carefully constructed these performances as diplomatic and political ventures. The court poet Munshi Gokulchand wrote a po- poem of praise about the Begum titled Zebul Tawarik. He wrote about the glorious parties that she threw at her palace or Haveli in Delhi. He also wrote about her notable patronage of painters and, as mentioned earlier, of architecture. If you live in India and would like to see one of her portraits in person, head over to the Redfort Museum in Delhi where one hangs of the Begum and Lord Hastings in conversation that was painted by the well-known artist Jeevan Ram. At her entertainments, there would be tawaifs or courtesans who danced for a selective and private audience. She also maintained a band who would play for visiting dignitaries, just as they would have in a British ball to which they danced in her mansion. Mansion. Thomas Bacon visited the Begum in the 1830s and wrote, and this is a quote from Darbag Hosh's book, quote, I have frequently been present at her darbars and have enjoyed the privilege of conversation with Her Highness, much to my amusement and edification. She usually received her visitors in a tent pitched outside her palace, except on grand occasions when she graces the state audience hall with her presence, and has little display of magnificence or wealth about her person." In a painting of one such grand occasion, Begum Samru is seated in the middle of a large crowd of men, both European and Indian. This painting also is available on our website, so do go check it out. And um, I have also provided a link to the museum site where um, this painting currently resides. In the painting, she is the only woman present amongst a mass of men centrally placed holding a hookah set on a brightly coloured large carpet. In front of her, on the floor, sits her scribe, and to her side, her stepson, David Brysandre, 
her prime minister and the visiting British dignitary. The entire scene is set like one when a group photograph of an official event is taken um, and it is set outside what looks like a neoclassical mansion. Bacon described her as a small woman who dressed unostentatiously but loved throwing insane parties. He once saw her, quote, enveloped in a large yellow cashmere shawl of exquisite texture, though my by no means showy, and under the shawl, a handsome green cloak of European fashion. End quote. She also wore a turban like men, he said, and sometimes exchanged that for a more mogul-like cap worn by nobility, which was thoroughly jeweled and contained golden ornaments. Ghosh, in a book, remarks that this sort of dressing suggests a kind of cross-dressing and cites other contemporaneous writers who also commented on the Begum's clothing as being more that of a man's than a woman's. This was perhaps a practical arrangement, considering her life spent on battlegrounds, but Ghosh also points out that her dressing created confusion amongst Europeans on how to identify her as anything but a brave strong political ruler. The portraits that we find of her online stay close to this description, but none of these are from from India, even though Lal in his book mentions Begum's portraits as being in Meerut and Lucknow. The portraits of her mostly in the public are seen in collections in Europe, taken by her heirs, including her step-great-granddaughter, who married into a high-ranking Italian family. As for the parties she threw, Thomas Bacon had this to say, quote, The Begum usually gives a grand feat which lasts three days during Christmas and to which nearly all leading the society of Meerut, Delhi and the surrounding stations are invited. I have by me one of her circulars, and this is what the circular says, the invitation says, Her Highness the Begum Samru requests the honour of the company of so-and-so at Sardana on Christmas Eve at the celebration of High Mass and during the two following days to notch and a display of fireworks. Bacon then proceeds to describe how the space looks. Tents are prepared in the palace garden for the accommodation of visitors and every luxury which a profuse outlay can secure is provided for the company. The tables are sumptuously spread, the Viands and the wines are alike excellent. Upon these grand occasions, the Begum usually honours the guests by presiding at the table, but she does not herself partake of any food in their presence. Not only are the numerous visitors entertained in this magnificent style, but the whole host of their followers and train are also feasted and fettered in a manner equally sumptuous in proportion of their condition. End quote. In another painting that I've seen of Begum Samru, this entire scene described by Thomas Bacon is laid out almost in documentary detail. The Begum's Haveli in Delhi, now known as Bhagirath Palace, the, sorry, the Bhagirath Place that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, now used by film distributors in Old Delhi, is the site of the massive festivities in the painting. 
The neoclassical facade of the building is defined by a set of grand curved stairways that take you to the second floor from the luscious garden set in front of the building. Right outside the gateway entrance to the building, one sees horse-drawn carriages arriving alongside people on elephants surrounded by mahouts, helpers and other servant folk. In the walkway between the gateway and the mansion, a band in Indian attire plays music, much like, I would imagine, in present weddings of rich people in South Asia, while vendors sit cross-legged on the side of the walkways providing fruits and other edibles to men present in the compound. I'm pretty sure upon close examination, I did see one of the vendors were selling in this painting mangoes. You yum. English women are seen on the third floor parapet of the mansion looking down at all the festivities and quite removed from the actual ground where these festivities are happening. At the landing of the grand stairs in the middle centre of the painting and of the mansion's facade stands the diminutive figure of Begum Samru looking over the scene and perhaps also surveying her soldiers, some of whom are in the compound. Samru's troops were in large part made up of Europeans, at least in the senior ranks. There was, of course, for a brief time, the, her lover, Levasu, who was the Frenchman who led the troops. There was also the man who played the villain of their love story, George Thomas, who, was, who had also been her commander. Her generals were European as well, named Salor and Bernier. There were also Muslim and Hindu men in her service, including a later commander of her army, Inayatullah Khan, and her prime minister, Rai Singh. In 1836, when she died, she was commemorated by her stepson, David Dysandra, by a tomb that also had sculptural portraits of David Dice and the Begum's adopted son, the local archbishop, Father Julius Caesar, and other officials. If this was not proof enough of the various cultures that she patronized and brought together at her principality of Sardana, her tomb itself was made by an Italian sculptor commissioned to do so by David Dysambra. Here, in Sardana, she had held, in her power, a sizable army of 3,000 soldiers in six battalions, bigger than the army her husband Reinhardt had commanded. While she had played a switching sides game through the 1770s on, by 1803, in an effort to maintain her estate or jagir, she had signed treaties with the British to come to their aid as often as needed for complete control of her estate. She got this with the agreement that after her death, her lands would be reverted back to the British. If you remember, these were lands originally gifted as a gift to Reinhardt by Mughal Emperor, but as it stood in 1800, the British were the de facto rulers of this region, not the Mughal Emperor. She had, by this point, become an exceptionally well-known administrator who not only was fighting battles for the British, but within Sardana, her principality, had worked to bring in agricultural reforms, civic amenities like schools and hospitals, and other improvements by which the living conditions of the citizens of Sardana could be vastly improved. 
While this may seem to make Begum Samru a staunch ally of the British, even if an able administrator, there are instances that suggest that she wasn't always such a staunch ally. Like everything else in this period of often sudden and constant and rather violent change, her relationship with the British was itself quite complex. For instance, Lady Sarah Amherst, wife of the Governor-General William Amherst, bitterly remarked in the mid-1820s that not only did the Begum put on notches for her British guests, but sometimes patronized comic sketches that was not at all amusing, at least to Lady Amherst. For in these sketches, there was one that she saw which showed a judicious tussle between an English corporal and a commander that was clearly making fun of the courts of England, the comedy skit implying that the entire system of English justice was corrupt. This was too much for the arguably delicate Lady Amherst to bear. I would argue that showing political sketches a la John Stewart style about British officers to British officials was quite the gutsy move, even for the Begum. Begum Samru is a perfect example of self-fashioning. Ghosh, in her book, points out that this kind of self-fashioning, where she held herself as Begum Samru, was her consciously identifying herself as both a woman of noble Indo-Persian descent as well as the rightful heir to Reinhardt's army and estate. Her official seal is of exceptional interest in the way she fashioned or represented herself. The seal had both English and Persian on it, including her status as a noble at the Mughal court, thus directly connecting her to Mughal nobility and ascertaining her closeness to the British. She spoke Persian and some English, but dressed as a Muslim person, often taking on the headdress of a man, but maintaining the parda until the end of her life. Other women who became Bibis and Begums to the newly fashioned Nabobs of colonial era South Asia are sometimes heard of in the stories of these men. But none of these women have inspired biographers and writers as much as Begum Samru has. A Bollywood movie needs to be made of Begum Samru for sure. It could, of course, include all the creative and real romantic love interests she seems to have had, other than the two men mentioned in this episode, to make it much more saucier. But in the end, it is also about how we could try to think more of women in history that belong to South Asia, that had this incredible power, but yet many of us have never heard of before. So who do you think should take the titular role of Begum Farzana, Johanna, Zebunisa, Samru in this fictional Bollywood movie about a real woman that I really need Bollywood to make? Leave a comment on our Facebook page, which you can find by searching within Facebook for Masala History. Tell us who you think should really play this role and then let's get in touch with some Bollywood actors and directors to get this movie made. Maybe Vidya Balan should play her. Hmm, I don't know. Well, I'm going to go think about this for a little bit longer and I'll see you all in the next episode. So till then, it's bye from me, Deepti. Thanks for listening.